You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are joined today by Professor Salim Abdul Karim, a close friend and referred to as Slim by his friends. So Slim, thank you so much for being with us today. Definitely the coolest nickname of anybody who's been on our podcast. (laughs) Okay, I take that as a compliment. (laughs) Yeah, it is, it is. Great. Slim is the chair of the Ministerial Advisory Committee on COVID-19 in South Africa. We'll hear a bit more about that committee and what it does but it's turned out to be terribly important committee. That's an emblem of the power of science and public health expertise in South Africa and driving the response. Slim's an infectious disease epidemiologist, a renowned clinician and research scientist. He directs CAPRISA, the Center for AIDS Program of Research in South Africa, a very famous outfit based in Durban. He's vice chancellor at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and a professor of global health at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. We're really thrilled and honored to have you with us here, Slim, today. I'm going to ask you just to open up with a sort of scene setter. Let's start with where South Africa finds itself today in its response to the coronavirus pandemic. June 1st, South Africa enters the next phase in its reopening. Step three, and congratulations on reaching that point. If you could give us a a snapshot of how we got to this point. We're at a much different place than when the first case was discovered March 5th, the national emergency declared by the president in mid-March, the five-week lockdown launched by the president March 26th. So we've moved forward significantly. So Slim, welcome and thank you. Why don't you just give us a quick, where are we right now? And then we can go from there. Sure, happy to do so. Since we had our first case on the 5th of March, the whole understanding of this problem became immediate. Until then, it was only a problem that was happening everywhere else. But the 5th of March changed the discourse. This is now our problem as well. Within a matter of 10 days, on the 15th of March, the president declared a state of disaster. State of disaster is just in terms of the laws of our country. It enabled him to do a range of things, closing the schools, banning international travel, instituting a range of public health measures. So all of that is done under the powers given to the president when he declares a state of disaster. Within a matter of just under two weeks thereafter, the president declared that we will have a national lockdown. He had declared that national lockdown when we had 402 cases and it was implemented on the 27th of March. That's when it came into effect. At that time, the epidemic doubling time in South Africa was two days. Just think about that. The rate of growth of the epidemic was doubling every two days. From the 27th of March until the end of April, we had what we call a strict lockdown. You know, there was literally little room for maneuver, just, you know, the only absolutely essential services were allowed. And during those five weeks, the doubling time of the epidemic changed from two days prior to the lockdown 
to 15 days during the period of the lockdown. There is little question that it had its desired effect in terms of slowing the rate of spread of the virus. We started easing the lockdown on the 1st of May. And as of today, we are now in, I'll call it lockdown light, because about 80% of businesses have gone back. It's just, you know, things like sporting events and so on that haven't yet been reinitiated. South Africa is unusual in that we have eased the lockdown and eased our restrictions while cases are actually going up. And the reason for that is that it's really not sustainable for South Africa to continue its lockdown. And indeed, the benefits of the lockdown in terms of reducing community transmission have largely been obtained. So we are now going to go through a much more complicated process of using the entirety of our prevention toolbox, the social distancing, the sanitizing, the testing and isolation and all of the other tools given that we will have a lot of the restrictions eased over the next little while. As of today, we have just over 30,000 cases and we've had just close to 700 deaths. Overall, if you look at South Africa, we have two different pictures. For the Western Cape, that's Cape Town and its surrounds, we have a rapidly growing epidemic, an epidemic that's now going clearly into its surge, into the inflection point, rapidly doubling, doubling time right now of around eight to nine days. And we're expecting to see a peak in that epidemic over the next week or two. The rest of the country has incredibly low rates of COVID-19. It's quite striking actually that what we had all thought would be the primary focus of the epidemic, which would be Johannesburg, given its international hub, turned out not to be the case. We have very few cases in, in Johannesburg and indeed in the rest of the country. So we have what we're expecting now is that the peaks will vary by, by province and that we expect that the Western Cape is about three weeks or so ahead of the rest of the country. The Eastern Cape will follow because there's a lot of communication between the East and Western Cape. And then we're expecting to see outbreaks occur in the greater Johannesburg area next and then KwaZulu-Natal. So the four big centers we expect to be hit over the next six to eight weeks. Thank you. That's a remarkable story and thank you so much. I mean, the the South African experience really does stand out in a couple of ways. I mean, the fact that there was high level action taken early and aggressive action taken early, that the advisory committee that you had was stood up rapidly and uh, empowered those scientists, public health experts, and that you moved to a very aggressive screening and testing. And have now an army of 60,000 community health workers proactively deploying into the community. So high-level political and commitment, community engagement, creating this force of 60,000 community health workers. 
how did all of this happen? I mean, this is this doesn't just happen on its own. And I assume it, it is rooted in the deep historical experience with HIV that South Africa has had. So tell us a bit, how did this happen? South Africa's response draws heavily on its experiences with HIV and tuberculosis. The fact that we had the political will to act early was central because that's what enabled us to have time. And that time was used, firstly, to slow community transmission. The second was to ensure we can put in plans to develop new healthcare capacity. I mean, it's quite striking, actually, when you look at the Cape Town International Convention Center. It's now a 1,200-bed hospital. We have uh, equipped our hospitals. We've established the triage processes, procured the PPE required for the staff to treat COVID patients. And importantly, we use the time to establish and build capacity for testing and our prevention measures. Because we've had a long history of tuberculosis, we have in South Africa an extensive program of community healthcare workers who go and do contact tracing for tuberculosis. So when COVID-19 came along, we already had a whole lot of people who were already trained, already know how to do this, were already equipped to go and do contact tracing. And so that's what they did. They switched, they were redeployed from uh, TB contact tracing. I can't remember what proportion, but a proportion of them remained doing TB contact tracing. The rest were redeployed to doing contact tracing and they monitor quarantine for COVID-19. But one of the real strengths we have is we have tens of thousands of community healthcare workers that are part and parcel of our HIV program. And they are the continuity between our healthcare services and the community. So one of the challenges we have when you have a situation like ours, where you have you know, somewhere in the region of about 7.9 million people living with HIV, if they all had to go to the healthcare services to get routine healthcare and their medication, we would just swamp the facilities. And so we developed over the years a step-down approach where once patients are stable, they are then managed in terms of the home visits that are made by community healthcare workers. And they can even access their treatment through that means. So this group of community healthcare workers already exist. They already uh, know their communities where they do their home visits. They are already trained in how to interact with infectious individuals. They are already trained in how to get basic medical information. So they already know all of this. And so within a week or so after the lockdown, we initiated this program where we started off with 28,000 community healthcare workers going house to house. And we chose the 993 communities that we thought were going to be most at risk of COVID transmission. And using that approach, this group of 28,000 eventually grew to over 50,000 community healthcare workers that go house to house and they screen everyone in each house using a cell phone where they have a set of six questions. They ask those questions 
And when they upload that information, it goes with locator information. So we know exactly where the screening has happened. So we have gaps, we know where the gaps are, we know which areas we've covered, and everyone who has symptoms is then referred for testing so that we can implement our measures. That as soon as somebody is referred for testing, they are then put into quarantine. If they are found to be positive, they go into isolation, we do contact tracing. So it's a huge machinery that was put into place. It was only doable because they already existed for HIV. Great. Thank you. Andrew, come on in. Thank you, Steve. Slim, South Africa's experience has not been without significant tensions, particularly given its inequities, high levels of poverty and unemployment. There's been controversy over abusive police actions. The lockdown has caused severe pain for the poor, those who work in the informal sector, the unemployed. How have these issues been handled? There's also been controversy over the lack of transparency and the sharing of data. Can you talk about that as well? If we look at uh, the way in which the National Disaster Act works, it does have a substantial enforcement component. And the way in which the whole response was initiated has a substantial enforcement element to it. And with that came a very unfortunate set of circumstances that we had the deployment of the military, the deployment of the police force, and they operate in a very different mode to the way we operate. So in healthcare, we work with trying to engage with people and we try to convince them to do things and we explain to them it's in their own interest and it's in the public's interest. But enforcement people don't do that. They work on a basis, here's the rule, you follow it. And I think we made a mistake by depending so heavily on enforcement initially. I think there were three things that deeply concerned us. The first is we had just seen what the experiences were in China and we had just seen what the experiences were in Italy. Those pictures cast an image that scared everyone, that we did not want to be in that situation, that we had to avoid that at all costs. The second was that if we took our traditional approach, which is, you know, we'll sit down and we'll talk to leaders, we'll engage with them and we'll get them on board and then we'll let it diffuse to the early adopters and then wait for everyone else to come on board, the epidemic would have wiped us out by then. We didn't have the time to do the very traditional way in which we implement public health measures. And the third was that there was just a very deep concern that we were possibly sitting on a much more complex problem in the nature of huge parts of our community that just can't implement social distancing and hand washing just because they live in informal settlements. And to cap it all, we were really deeply concerned. We had no idea how this would impact on a country that had a huge HIV and TB epidemic. A respiratory disease coming into this situation, we thought we were gonna be in a situation even worse than what we saw in Italy. So action had to be taken, it had to be decisive, mistakes were made, but they were made in good faith initially. I think as we've learned, we've changed. And that process of self-correction has been inherent to the steps that we've undertaken. 
I think part and parcel of that has been that we needed to provide information more timely. I think, unfortunately, we at a, at a political level, and I say we, not meaning us, but at a political level, there was a hesitancy to release the information on the mathematical models because those numbers are scary. They really are. They're very scary. And so there was just deep concern that we would just panic the population with releasing numbers like that. I think that that was not the right decision. I think we should have had the confidence that people would look at those numbers, they'll deal with it, and and that's what happened. So, you know, it took a whole week before they released the numbers, but when they did, you know, everybody thought, well, we we were expecting it to be bad. So this is actually you're not too far from what we thought. So when when the when the numbers were released that we we're expecting 40,000 deaths and, you know, millions of infections, it didn't have the negative impact. I think people were prepared to receive that. I think with hindsight, we should have been much more transparent, much more fast. We should have adopted less of an enforcement approach, more of a convincing approach, more engagement with community leaders up front. But those are lessons we're learning with hindsight. We often hear a lot about the difficulty of low and middle income countries accessing test kits, protective gear, and oxygen. What has been South Africa's experience? We ramped up COVID testing rapidly. I mean, over the last month, we went from about 90,000 odd tests in April to almost a quarter million tests in May. So that's a drastic ramping up and the supplies just can't keep up. Put very simply, we have huge commitments from our suppliers to provide the tests. We've purchased them. They just can't supply them, either because supply chains have been interrupted or because they just can't manufacture them fast enough. And we accept that there's a global shortage and every country is trying to buy the same kits. So we accept we have to join the queue in that respect. So we are in a real bind at the moment. We ramped up testing as we had said we would, but now we're having to pull that back because we simply cannot get enough kits. We had hoped to reach 30,000 tests per day as of today. Right now, we can't even reach 20,000 tests because we just don't have enough kits. We have an actual physical capacity in terms of machines. We can do over 50,000 tests a day, but we just can't lay our hands on the reagents. I think that's been a bitter lesson for us. I mean, for us, we should have had, you know, some kind of local production or some. Yeah, but, you know, these are all lessons of hindsight, but it, we are paying the price right now of really restricted quantities of tests. Let me ask you this, Slim. You're a renowned research scientist. How is South Africa to play in the development of a coronavirus vaccine and the future of manufacturing a vaccine? South Africa has a very substantial vaccine capability in terms of clinical research. We have a history of manufacturing several viruses and we ourselves have, in the past, made our own polio uh, vaccines. We've made our own BCG vaccine. Some of that capability has unfortunately been lost because 
you know, just we can't manufacture at scale to make it competitive. And so we've lost some of that capacity. But the State Vaccine Institute, which is, has been converted into a, a public-private partnership, is the organization that has still some capabilities in vaccine manufacture. I think South Africa is well poised to play a major role in a COVID vaccine program. Firstly, in being able to sequence viruses, understand the antigens, assess the genetic makeup of the virus. Second is to actually get involved in vaccine manufacture. The third is to actually conduct clinical trials, which infrastructure is very well developed. And then I think fourthly is to be a launch pad to develop a vaccine and manufacture it and distribute it and implement it, not just in South Africa, but as a launching pad for much of Southern Africa. Slim, are there actual early field trials underway right now for vaccines in South Africa? We have no vaccine trials underway just yet, but there are about three or four trials that are in planning stages. Okay. And do you foresee, uh, in our plans beginning now in terms of amping up manufacturing production capacity within South Africa? As it stands, you know, it depends on which vaccine, you know, we want to develop. Because right now we don't actually have the platforms right. for most of the different right. types of candidates. I think for us, it would be impractical to establish one particular platform and we don't know whether the vaccine is going to work. So I think right. the plan is more to understand where the lead candidates are likely to be and then at risk develop that platform for that particular vaccine. As, as Oxford University is doing now with the Serum Institute of India. Yes, yes. Slim, can I ask two questions that one has to do with South Africa's legacy of activism and, and mobilization? It's interesting to see Mark Haywood emerge now. He's now at the Maverick Citizen. He's put together the C19 People's Coalition. You're seeing this mobilization that's growing out of these groups that were so determinative in the HIV struggle. And I wanted to ask you to reflect on what that has meant and what's the contribution been from these activists. Yeah, I'm not the best person to answer that question. Because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just working 24-7 on, on the health response. It's hard for me to comment on the specifics. I will just make a general comment, if I might. There is no question that the way in which we need to respond has to be with the consent and with the support of the community. The original enforcement approach is no longer viable and no longer relevant. We are now easing the lockdown, and as we do, community groups and activists have to become the forefront of our approach. The medical world will continue to our backroom work, preparing hospitals, preparing for the surge of cases, and doing all the things that are necessary. But if we are to slow this epidemic, we're going to need our activism and our community engagement and our outreach to pay dividends in encouraging people, in supporting people to make the behavior changes that will enable us to slow this epidemic. Thank you.
the second question has to do with the threat that this all poses to the gains made in HIV and tuberculosis and other infectious diseases. I mean, many people are arguing that the coronavirus pandemic is a profound threat to the historical achievements in high burden countries living with HIV and tuberculosis. What's your thought on that? I've been, I am deeply concerned that during the period of the lockdown, we have experienced quite a drastic reduction in the number of patients coming forward to be tested for TB, coming forward to collect their medications for TB and for HIV. To give you some idea, during the month of the lockdown, we had a 33% reduction in TB notifications. So that means that there are a whole lot of people walking around with TB in our communities that will be diagnosed in a delayed manner. That presents a public health threat to us. And I understand why that happened. When you put a stay-at-home order and the transport systems are interrupted and people are deeply concerned and apprehensive that if they go to a healthcare facility, they're exposing themselves to COVID patients. And they're scared of that because they've been heard, they've heard how many hospitals have had to close because their you know, staff have become infected from patients. So all of that combined has created a very strong disincentive for people to go for routine medical care. Fortunately, we are undoing that. The president in his last national address specifically encouraged everyone to go for their routine medical care. He explained that the healthcare services are operational, open, and there for everybody to get their care. And I have already started seeing some of the increases that uh, in viral load testing as well. So I'm optimistic that we will remedy that uh, past, but that it happened at all was uh, a short-sightedness on our part. We should have yes. planned better for that. Yeah. What's the future look like, do you think, for South Africa? You've been pretty blunt at different points about what lies ahead. What's the next year or two look like for South Africa, in your view? They call me, you know, the harbinger of doom <laughs> because I don't sugarcoat what I got to say. On national television, I said to people, I have to share with you a difficult truth. That truth is not easy for me to tell you, but I have to tell you. And that is that we are going to get hundreds of thousands of cases. That's just how this virus spreads. Can't do anything about it. There are five reasons I gave the nation as to why we can't beat this virus. I talked about how it is spread in the asymptomatic period, how it is spread pre-symptomatically, how you get these super spreading events. And I went through all of that and I explained the real problems and why we don't have the wherewithal to defeat this virus. So people have an understanding of that. And there is a level of concern because of the drastic action that was taken. And so now when we're encouraging people to go back to school and back to work, we have the opposite reaction now. So now it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. The government's got only Hobson's choice here. No matter which way you go, 
you want to open schools? Half the parents, out of the question. I'm not putting my child in this situation. The other half of the parents, of course, I want my child to go to school. So you got a situation where we highlighted the urgency, we highlighted the threat, people took it seriously. And now we have a problem that we now have to explain that actually you're going to live with this virus for the next, you know, two, three years. We don't know how long it's going to be before we'll have a vaccine, if we have a vaccine at all. So you can imagine that we are now in a difficult period where we have to switch our messaging and we have to explain to people that you've got to switch to the new normal and you've got to find a way to live with the ever-present threat of this virus. Thank you. Andrew? Well, Slim, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I just wanted to ask you, you know, a final question. What gives you the most hope? I was just amazed when, you know, I interact with healthcare workers on the ground. I interact with people who are, you know, doing their best. And just about nobody has ever come to me and said, you know, I'm not getting paid or I'm putting all this effort in and nobody's recognizing me. I think I've just seen a level of selflessness. We are in a crisis. People rolled up their sleeves. They came to the common good and they're doing what it takes and it's for no reward. They're just happy to do whatever it takes, whether it's feeding the poor who have been really withstanding the, the worst of the situation under the lockdown, whether it's in, you know, assisting in making masks to give to people, whether it's in, you know, helping, volunteering in the hospitals. I've just seen a level of commitment that I have not seen before. That gives me great hope. I have to say that I've watched some of that get eroded over the last few weeks. People are tired. You know, they've been sitting at home now for nearly nine weeks. That's a long time. It takes its toll. But despite all of that, I, you know, I'm just so amazed at how people feel like, you know, we're trying to keep them safe. And that feeling that, you know, they have confidence that what we're doing is trying to keep them safe gives me the energy to start each day anew and to make the commitments that we are seeing. Professor Slim, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an amazing conversation and really valuable for our listeners. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. Thank you, Slim. Thanks, Dean. 